Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American, born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. The war with Hamas, the battles in Gaza, are continuing. Israel's battle plan consists of three main phases. The first phase started on October 7th when Hamas carried out their murderous attack. The Israeli Defense Forces then moved many of the regular mandatory service troops to the Gaza border. The regular mandatory service is for soldiers ages 18 to 21, roughly, depending on their unit. The bulk of the reserves were drafted from their homes. The reserves are those that completed the regular service, so from around age 21, and until around the age of 42, once again, depending on the unit they serve in. As the troops prepared for the Gaza invasion, the Air Force carried out a bombing campaign and special units conducted raids on Hamas. The second phase didn't start until almost three weeks later, on October 26th, when the Israeli Defense Forces invaded full force into the Gaza Strip. The mission was to take over the entire Gaza Strip, weeding out Hamas, above ground that is. The ground raids involved infantry, the Armored Corps, and the Combat Engineer Corps. And of course, many special units such as Shaitet Shloshesre, which is our sea commandos, specializing in sea to land incursions, or Duvdavan, an elite unit dedicated to fighting in various areas and works to prevent terrorist activities and functions openly, but also undercover. We also have units like Duhifat, specializing in urban combat. Maneuvers include counter-terror operations or Maglan, specializing in operating behind enemy lines and deep in enemy territory using advanced technologies and weaponry. Now these are just a few, there are more. It appears that the second stage of the war, once again taken over the Gaza above ground, will be completed by mid or the end of January 2024. So that's pretty soon. Then comes the third phase, which is the most difficult and the most time-consuming. It'll last months, and perhaps the entirety of 2024. That phase is when the Israeli Defense Forces takes the battle underground to the historically unprecedented tunnel system built by Hamas. Sources in the IDF and Secret Service Intelligence say that a maze of tunnels built by Hamas is considered to have no parallel anywhere else. The tunnels are a strategic threat to the state of Israel. We're talking about roughly 500 kilometers, which is roughly 300 miles, of tunnels, an entire underground city. Imagine the entire tube system in London or the entire subway system in New York City. This extensive network includes narrow tunnels for passage of one person at a time, as well as wider ones, including rooms, offices, medical facilities, storage rooms, living quarters, and more. All this intended to be used in case the Hamas has a siege put on it, as is now happening with Israeli Defense Forces. Some of the tunnels are reinforced with concrete walls. They are ventilated using solar energy or fuel, 
and include means of communications. Now look, this is not the first time that military forces use underground tunnels. Tunnels have been used for combat, hiding out, storing food, storing equipment, weapons, etc. The tunnels tactic goes back, way back, to ancient times. King David, 3,000 years ago, most likely used an underground water tunnel to sneak into Jerusalem and conquer it from the Jebusites. The famous Jewish general Bar Kokhva, 1,900 years ago, used tunnels to hide from the Romans and conducted guerrilla warfare with them. In the Middle Ages, the Crusaders built tunnels under the port city of Akko, that is located in the Western Galilee, to escape from the Muslim invading armies. Tunnels were used during the First World War to breach enemy trenches. They were used by Japanese troops for defense purposes during World War II in the Pacific. The Viet Cong used tunnels in Vietnam to strike at American forces. And again, these are just a few examples. Israel has some experience with attack tunnels. In the northern front, Israel faces an even tougher adversary, the Hezbollah. Hezbollah established a complex system of underground tunnels and bunkers that will allow them to continue firing rockets with standing air attacks from Israel when needed. During the Second Lebanon War, which was in 2006, Israeli special forces uncovered a hidden bunker system dug by the Hezbollah terrorists. During the fighting, two of the unit soldiers were killed and the bunker system was destroyed and cleaned. Hezbollah's tunnel's infrastructure included, among other things, a 25-kilometer long tunnel, that's roughly 15 and a half miles. Apparently, it was aided and built by North Korea. The North Koreans assisted in this endeavor of Hezbollah. After the Second Lebanon War, which again took place in the summer of 2006, Hezbollah decided to dig penetrating attack tunnels into Israel. They did so in top secrecy, or so they thought. The Israel Defense Forces was on to them. In 2018, Israel destroyed six long attack tunnels, and that put an end to that tactic, as far as we know. So basically, Hamas isn't introducing a new tactic with their tunnels. But, as said, the extent and sophistication of their tunnels are unprecedented. Hamas made tunnel warfare their top priority. For over 20 years, Hamas employed thousands of Gazans to build and maintain the tunnels. Some Gazan workers are known to have been killed during the work when excavated sections collapsed on top of them. One of the Israeli hostages, named Yocheved Lifshitz, age 85, said she and a group of other hostages walked several miles through tunnels the width of a wheelbarrow before they reached a large tiled room. When they got there, one of the terrorists said to them, Welcome to the underground of Gaza. Yocheved Lifshitz also told us that she and several other hostages were taken to a smaller room that included a toilet, shower, and mattresses. The entire time, almost two months, held in the tunnels, they could hear the explosions above them. When her release was negotiated, along with other women and children, she told us they walked for a long time before exiting through a series of steps and ladders. Dr. Daphna Richmond Barak, an expert on tunnel warfare, author of a book named Underground Warfare, was interviewed on Israeli news channel, stating, and I quote, the fact that Hamas leaders and thousands of its operatives have already lived for weeks under the tunnels demonstrate how smart the organization's planning in the tunnels is. Hamas probably maintains clinics there, weapons, reserves for energy, and enough food. Their operatives are probably mentally trained for staying in dark and closed places. Dr. Richard Mabarak summarizes and says, 
This is the most sophisticated tunnel system ever built. And that brings us to try and understand how to deal effectively with the Hamas tunnel system. In other words, how do we destroy them? And ultimately, the goal of Israel is to indeed destroy the tunnels. The tunnels, again, are a strategic threat to Israel. They must be destroyed if we, Israel, want to eliminate Hamas's military power. Thus far, the Israeli Defense Forces ground forces uncovered hundreds, over 800, of shafts leading into tunnels. With each discovery, the Israeli Defense Forces must make a decision whether to destroy the tunnel shafts or to wait. So first of all, we need as much intelligence information as possible. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, can't simply send soldiers into the tunnels, which are unknown areas to them, but very well known to Hamas. Hamas tries to bait the Israeli soldiers to enter the tunnels with the hope of ambushing them and thus inflicting serious casualties. So Israel sends robots carrying cameras, sensors, and other classified technology underground. The IDF needs, first and foremost, to map out the tunnels. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant hinted that the IDF has new technologies to destroy the tunnel network. Israel's goal is to identify, destroy, and surround enough tunnels so that Hamas will be forced to surrender or come above ground to fight. So what are the methods of destroying the tunnels? The first method that Israel has used many times in the past and is using now are bunker buster bombs from the air. The Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli Air Force, uses penetrating bombs to blow up the root of the tunnels. Even if they are too deep in such a way that the bomb does not reach the tunnel directly, since it is sandstone ground, the explosion will usually cause the collapse of the ground above the tunnel, and in any case, also the collapse of the tunnel itself. A second method is using tankers filled with liquid explosives, which are piped into tunnels. On December 21st, the Israeli Defense Forces blew up the entire Hamas underground headquarters in the northern Gaza. It was huge and extremely deep. The method used was to fill them with a gel-like explosive. The liquid is pumped into tunnels in pipes connected to trucks carrying huge containers. The problem with it is that it takes tons of material to destroy several hundred meters of tunnel. An additional method involves planting explosives in a tunnel. IDF spokesman Brigadier General Daniel Hagari said that the IDF forces planted explosive devices and identified the terrorists with cameras. He continued, and I quote, We have new combat methods that we'll use to eliminate terrorists. Our troops will go into the tunnels, plant explosives, wait for the right moment, and eliminate the terrorists underground. They will not be protected underground. Photographs of dead terrorists in the tunnels are emerging. To destroy the entire network of tunnels, Military analysts say Israel will probably have to use a bunker-penetrating or thermobaric weapon, which contains a mixture that disperses and then ignites, and is designed to create an explosion that bypasses obstacles and flows into buildings. Now, humanitarian organizations have warned of the danger of using this kind of weapon in densely populated areas like in Gaza. A fifth method is to flood the tunnels with concrete a method that the Israeli Defense Forces employed against Hezbollah up in the north. However, it may not be possible to destroy this method at the speed and scale required to achieve the desired military outcome, which is to render the tunnels inoperable and quick. And so now I come to one of the main methods discussed all over the media, and that is flooding the tunnels with water. Israel built a system of large pumps, at least seven of them, 
probably more, that will enable Israel to flood Hamas's large tunnel system under the Gaza Strip with seawater, a tactic that may destroy the tunnels and force Hamas terrorists out of them. Slow flooding is possible, and the IDF spokesman hinted and said the purpose will be to force the terrorists to flee above ground. There's also high-pressured flooding. Most likely at a later stage, the high-pressured flooding is supposed to destroy the tunnels from within. Now, there are issues. And what are they? So first of all, there are hostages, Israeli hostages. As I've already mentioned, it is most likely that many of the remaining hostages are held underground. Obviously, this is the number one reason why flooding the tunnels using high-pressure water is not really an option. It's also obvious that Hamas knows this. A second issue is that it is difficult to say what seawater will do to the existing sewage and water infrastructures. It is difficult to say what it will do to the underground reservoirs. And it is difficult to determine the impact on the stability of the nearby buildings. A third issue with flooding the tunnels is that the sewage and water system in the Gaza Strip are already in a bad state and are even polluted. Furthermore, Gaza's aquifer, that is the underground water, from which the population draws water for drinking and other uses, has already become saltier due to the rise in the sea level. And more energy will be needed to operate the desalination facilities on which the population depends. In other words, an environmental issue. A fourth issue is that flooding could have a negative impact on the contaminated soil in the Gaza Strip, and hazardous material that is already stored in the tunnels could seep into the ground. Let's be blunt, it is called environmental damage. But the threshold of environmental damage is high and not easily met. This is so because there are three conditions stated by the International Committee of the Red Cross that would cause a widespread damage. So one is the widespread damage, and that refers to damage extending to several hundred square kilometers. In other words, a lot. A second is long-term damage, transiting to a period of at least several years, possibly several decades. And a third is severe damage. That is to say, harm that threatens the health or survival of the population on a large scale. Having said all of that, it seems that flooding the tunnels is absolutely an option that can be used by Israel. And now we must understand what international law says and what the issues there are. So flooding the tunnels as a tool of war is not new. In the 16th century, the Netherlands rebelled against Spain with the hope of gaining independence. The Spanish army was far more powerful on land. As the Spaniards advanced towards a city named Leiden, the Dutch broke the four dams holding back the North Sea. The sea flooded the area, much of which is at or below sea level. The Spanish forces had to withdraw in a hurry. During World War II, the English Royal Air Force carried out a daring bombing raid, destroying three dams in the German Ruhr Valley, the industrial heartland of Germany, flooding it. On the ground, almost 1,300 people were killed as a result of the flooding. Although the impact on the industrial production was limited, the raid gave a significant morale boost to the people of Britain. Most recently, the Kakhova Dam was destroyed during Russians' invasion of Ukraine. Although the Russians denied blowing it up, most experts believe they did so in order to thwart the planned Ukrainian counteroffensive. But flooding has implications that could possibly breach international law. Russia doesn't really care about it, but perhaps that is the reason for their denial. Israel does care. Israel cares about international law. 
Israel follows the rule of warfare very rigidly. What does international law say about flooding as a tool of war? The main point of international law states the following. Methods or means of warfare which are intended or may be expected to cause widespread, long-term, and severe damage to the natural environment are prohibited. And I mentioned already what that means in terms of widespread, long-term, and severe damage. Military operations to flood underground structures with water are considered an act of violent attack, given the destructive intent and effect, not something that international law can obviously reconcile. However, in the case of Israel, it is clear that the flooding is directed to degrade Hamas's ability to operate militarily. In that case, many non-Israeli experts claim that destructive acts directed against objects that are within the control of a belligerent party do not constitute breaking of international law. In the international court, the court located at The Hague in Holland, Article 4 of Regulations 23G states the following, It is not permissible to destroy or seize the enemy's property unless such destruction or seizure can be imperatively demanded by the necessity of war. The amount of armaments in the tunnels and thousands of hostile terrorists equipped with lethal weapons in the tunnels, it is safe to say Israel can flood the tunnels in accordance with international law. Look, it's clear. According to international law, that the tunnels may only be made the object of attack by flooding if they constitute military objectives. In other words, they must be objects which by their nature, location, purpose, or use make an effective contribution to the military action of Hamas. Furthermore, if the tunnels fall under the control of the Israeli Defense Forces, operations to flood them do not constitute violent attack or destructive intent. If Israel controls it, if Israel owns it, the rules governing the conduct of the destructive attacks are not applicable. Bottom line, in planning and carrying out an attack against the Hamas tunnel network, the Israeli Defense Forces must do everything feasible to assess whether the attack may be expected to cause any excessive incidental harm to civilian and civilian objects. Okay, so the overall conclusion is that flooding the tunnels is legal and perhaps a necessity. The tunnels are a military objective and are kosher to attack. Filling them with water would not be an indiscriminate attack. It would not cause unnecessary suffering or injury. Bearing in mind the very significant military advantage that may be expected from putting the tunnels out of operation, the level of collateral damage that may be anticipated as an immediate consequence of the attack is unlikely to be excessive. However, once again, Israel must be very careful not to cause reverberating effects that would reduce the availability of potable water to the civilian population and lead to high levels of injury and death. I'd like to end this episode by speaking about the hostage crisis. There are some negotiations going on right now in an attempt to release more hostages. Now remember, the last time there was a ceasefire was about a week long and ended on December 1st when Hamas breached it on two fronts. The first was when Hamas failed to provide a new list of hostages for release, as agreed on that day. Hamas also refused to release women and children as per the agreement. The agreement stated that women and children would be released, but Hamas didn't hold up that part of the deal. They are still holding non-soldier women. They are also holding the Bibas family, two children ages 10 months old and 4 years old, the mother and the father. Hamas further claims that the family, the Bibas family, 
is dead, very much contrary to footage filmed upon their abduction. They were very much alive, panicked, but unhurt. The second breach was when Hamas fired rockets at Israel just before 7 a.m., which marked the conclusion of the ceasefire deadline. After that, in three weeks of fighting, Israel took over more than 60% of the Gaza Strip. It's slow, due to the house-to-house fighting and type of guerrilla warfare conducted by Hamas. Israeli soldiers on the ground are reporting that every third house or so is booby-trapped. People with civilian clothing walk innocently in the street, then all of a sudden pull out weapons and fire. It's a tough fight. More recently, estimating that Hamas is damaged substantially, Israel took initiative and proposed an additional short-term ceasefire and release of terrorists from Israeli jail. In exchange, the Hamas should release more hostages. But the Hamas leadership in Gaza, led by Yihya Sinwar and his brother Muhammad Sinwar, have delusional demands. They demand an end to the fighting, an end to the war, meaning these butchers stay in power. They also demand release of all Palestinian terrorists held by Israel. They basically demand Israel's complete and utter surrender. That's not happening. And though they sound delusional, one can comprehend their frame of mind. They know Israel intends to find them and kill them. They know that their only insurance policy is to physically surround themselves with hostages. They want us to believe that their death will also be the death of the hostages. Israel will not succumb to Hamas demands. Not a chance. Israelis, all Israelis, know that if we do not take down Hamas's military and political rule, if we don't decisively destroy those that butchered us, those that are promising to do it again and again, they will not be able to survive for long in the world's toughest neighborhood, the Middle East. So, Israel continues to hope that the continuation of the military efforts will bring Sinwar to the realization that he cannot force an end to the war. This may happen not only as a result of the military efforts, but also if the Qatari and Egyptian pressure Hamas, perhaps find a formula in which Sinwar and other Hamas top ranks are given an exiled escape. There are signs of a dispute emerging between the Hamas political leadership residing in Qatar and that of Gaza. Bottom line, Israel is still going in full force with two objectives. One, release the hostages. Two, destroy Hamas. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all the podcast media sources, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.